Hello and welcome to Immigrantly, a safe space for unadulterated conversations about diverse communities. I am Sadia Khan. I am so excited to welcome all of you, our listeners, new and old, in this space where we share honest conversations about a variety of issues. And today I will share something that makes me extremely uncomfortable, like really uneasy. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people can relate to this. So last year, I sat down with Laura Williams for the Imperfectly Phenomenal Woman podcast. And you know what? As soon as I sat down, my inner voice was mired in preemptive regret. What was I thinking agreeing to talk about my sexual journey on a public forum? But I took a few deep breaths, sipped a glass of water and decided to block my reservations and delve into much needed catharsis. Now, this podcast offers a safe space for women to reframe limiting beliefs and be unapologetically themselves. And I did just that. For the first time, I unveiled the most intimate almost unreclaimed parts of my sexual journey. I was surprised by how easy it felt to publicly share my story, even though I had met Williams only five minutes earlier. In the interview, I said things I didn't realize were part of my consciousness. It was a long overdue look inward at the shame and confusion I have come to associate with sex, sexuality, and sexual empowerment. You know, as a young Muslim girl growing up in Pakistan, my understanding of sex was non-existent. Sure, I had some fleeting conversations with my friends and cousins, and we probably exchanged a few awkward giggles, but there was no formal sex education curriculum in the country. Family elders passed down relationship advice and anecdotes emphasizing the societal notion that the close family should be the bearers of such intimate knowledge. While there is wisdom in this cultural practice, it really prevented me from understanding sex because quote-unquote good girls didn't concern themselves with the subject and I really wanted to be that good girl. It took me a while to feel comfortable around conversations about sexual empowerment. And guess what? The podcast interview that I mentioned in the beginning, although I shared so many intimate details on it, I never posted that interview on my social media because I still feel I will be judged. But my today's guest is unapologetic in sharing her sexual journey. Today I am speaking with Sadia Azmat. Sadia is a British Indian writer and comedian who started with stand-up several years ago. She co-hosted a podcast for BBC called No Country for Young Women. Recently she published a book called Sex Bomb which explores sexuality and her identity as a Muslim woman. And I am so excited to have Sadia on Immigrantly. 
Wow, Sadia, I'm so excited to have you here. And it is going to be funny because my name is Sadia and your name is Sadia. And we'll be telling each other Sadia. Interesting. We don't know if we're talking to ourselves or to the other person. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. But you know what? You spell it with one A and I spell it with two A's. Is that by birth? Because a lot of people have the temptation to call us Sadia like uh, with an R, even though there's no R. So is that just how your parents named it? or I think that's how my father named it. He's very particular about spellings <laughs> and his English. He's really proud of his English. So maybe that's why. I don't know. <laughs> your English is beautiful as well. I was going to ask you, what's the meaning of your name? And I know that sounds stupid, but I wanted <laughs> to ask you before I tell you what I think the meaning is. I really don't know. Oh my God, you don't know. That's such an Asian thing. Like we really like always ask a meaning of names. Anyway, maybe it's not an Asian thing, but I believe Sadia means good luck. Oh, really? I believe, but I'm not sure that's correct based on life events. (laughs) I need plenty of good luck. I really do, at least for the next week. Sadia, I have consumed so many podcast interviews of yours and you have a fascinating personality and I have a lot of questions, but we'll start with how do you introduce yourself outside being a comedian and a writer? She is sexually frustrated. (laughs) You know what? I think that, to be honest with you, Sadia, (laughs) I'm not going to laugh every time I say your name, but I think it's hard because, yeah, it's about balance. And sometimes you don't want to be defined with the sum of your parts and these labels. And other times it's just people want it. And so, I don't know, it's probably the same for you. It's like your podcast is called Immigrantly Podcast and I love it. But then sometimes I think, you know, and I could be wrong, but you may not always want to be talking about things from that lens. But sometimes people can't see beyond that lens. You're right. But I also think that immigrant identity is a big umbrella of human existence. As you said, it's part of my identity. It's not fully who I am. And immigrantly is a manifestation of that claim that I am not fully just that. And there is so much more to us, right? When we talk about these conversations, we talk about food and faith, sexuality, love and relationships. Yes, yes, yes. Are you married? I am. I have two girls who are teenagers. <gasps> I can't believe you have kids, but they say they're probably really beautiful like you. Sadia, you're too kind, but my kids are off to college. I can't. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? Are they like child geniuses? Are they like four years old? <laughs> <laughs> they are not. I will be empty nester soon. And I know I've talked about this on so many recent episodes, but it's making me so emotional. Mm. I feel like I'm losing part of me. My babies are all grown up, which is such an interesting, incredible, at times emotional feeling to have when you see your kids go, especially as a South Asian mom. I want them to stay with me forever. That's a beautiful point. And I don't think that we have enough of these conversations. And anybody who's listening who's not Asian, I just need you to understand the love that Desi parents have for their kids. It's just a very special bond. And I know that's the same probably for most mums, but I only know the Asian version of this phenomenon. And in a way, it's funny, isn't it? Because they'll always be your babies, but you're going to have to find some something that 
feels a little bit of that celebration that you have for them, right? Uh, yeah. In a way. And I think it's really difficult. In my, and you could tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I think that Asian moms, especially, are so selfless. All they want to do is love their kids and look after their kids. And I don't know if they're able to prioritize themselves for those 18 years or more beyond we we know that there's like older people that live with their parents it's going to be a bit of an adjustment for you as you already know yeah absolutely but Sadia you know what when I had them I wasn't ready to have kids and when I look back I feel like this is a good time for me to connect with my 20 something year old self yeah what I can do and I've always looked at motherhood again as part of my identity but not wholly who I am being a South Asian mom you're right I focus a lot on my kids and I'll do anything for them but I also see myself as a woman, as a sexual being, as you would say, <laughs> yes, as a social entrepreneur, as an activist. There are so many things that I think about when I think about myself. And I hope that there is some kind of manifestation more of it now versus when my kids were home. But I want to go back to what you said. You have talked a lot about your sexuality, and I'm so glad Muslim women are finally talking about this outside the confines of their homes, because Contrary to what people may believe, Muslim women are sexual beings and they talk about sex, but within the confines of their homes. I remember I did this whole season on love and relationships where I literally talked to so many people about so many different facets of that. How do you define sexual empowerment as a Muslim woman, as somebody who is unapologetically talking about it? What does it mean to you? It's such a great question. I don't feel like I represent every Muslim or even every woman or every Asian. And so I think sometimes people put that on us, though, because they don't know many diverse people. So when you're that one point of reference, you don't want to be representing, but there's a kind of assumption that you are representing. It's difficult for me because I feel like I don't fit in. Like Muslim women don't kind of claim me necessarily as somebody that they... Um, approve of necessarily but some do so there's obviously this mixed reactions mixed responses and I think it's hard as a Muslim woman because nobody really wants to listen to us and accept what we're telling them because before they've even met any Muslim woman they've been told we're oppressed they've been told we have forced marriages they're told we are all sorts of things and so by the time they come across someone like me who's quite comfortable in my own skin maybe they think that something's weird because that's not what they've been taught so I don't know if that makes them think I'm unique or outsider which I guess as a comedian I guess we kind of are outsiders anyway they usually are very curious as to what Muslims think or what my family thinks so it still feels very much like I'm not able to represent myself as my own person that's a lot of the times people are like so what do your family think or what do, what do these people think or and it's always about what other people think I think it's a real reluctance to just take somebody at face value whether they're Muslim or hijabi or not like I have to put all of that before I could even answer your question which is that I love sex never really felt ashamed of it as sometimes there's an assumption that maybe women like me do I don't feel like I've been very lucky in love like you know I talk about that relationship in my book my memoir sex bomb you know, and I've learned a lot of hard lessons. So I'm single at the moment, guys, if you want to uh, <laughs> find me on Tinder. But I guess to answer your question is that I'm just trying to be me. And I think 
sometimes people don't understand like you know they, they wonder if you're joking because you're a comedian or they wonder if you know what's the real story like yeah I'm just a person who is like anybody else like we all like sex but I think it's funny because I say it because it's element of surprise because you don't expect it from a Muslim woman yeah it's like I'm not getting any as well Sadia just so you know <laughs> I love it Sadia, you've talked about comedy. That's something that you talk extensively about. And I was listening to one of your podcast episodes. I think it was last episode of your BBC podcast called No Country for Young Women. And I think you were talking about comedy and you said... You're not sure whether um, you're joking because you like funny and you're just messing around or because it's to appease other people. At some point, you kind of have... I don't know if I do it to mess around or to appease other people. And I think by other people at the time, you meant white people or people who don't share the same identity. And it really got me thinking, how do you use comedy? Is it a source of self-expression, protection or something else? It's such a amazing art form it could be all of the above and I think the honest answer is it does change I guess it's like you go through different phases or stages I've learned a lot from American comedians like Norm Macdonald and for me I think he's just trying to be funny and that's where I am now I think before I did used to find laughter as a great self-defense it diffuses a situation that can be very angry or tense but you make a funny comment and then everybody's like oh Like, let's say about ISIS. I can't say about America, but everybody in the UK was was really uptight around Muslims. And so I, I had a joke. I said, you know, um, ISIS won't accept my application. <laughs> I'm like so uh, unlucky. I can't even get into ISIS. Everybody's going to join them. They didn't even invite me. And so where... I think you're able to kind of relax the room. And now people, it's not to say all of people's anxieties or stress about that very real situation go away. But for that small period of time, people are a bit more like, it's not going to be the end of the world or, you know, oh, she's funny or, you know, we can we can laugh at this because especially now, the times that we're living in, it feels like there's so much seriousness and um, it doesn't feel like there's enough outlet. Even comedy is being policed and it's so sad to see because it is just comedy and some people are seeing and things that aren't there they're just making things up and attaching it to comedy because they don't even understand it and mm. so I think there's a lot of independent thought and freedom of speech that kind of ties into it and I'm a student of comedy right I've been doing it for a long time it kind of makes you feel a bit freer like we've just come out of the COVID things where you're a little bit repressed let's be honest or where things are really challenging comedy can make you feel like there's hope hmm. Hmm. what's been the most liberating part of comedy for you oof I think the most liberating part of comedy was letting go. Like it's taken years, but like I think there was a point where I was really wanting to impress the audience and like, you know, please them. And it's the same like real world. Yeah. You know, when you try too hard, it just doesn't work. It doesn't people, work. Yeah. You know, people smell desperation. People just don't want to be around you. And um, it just gives a bad vibe altogether. It, it's so character building and it builds your communication skills. But I think when I stop trying so hard and it definitely took a lot of time but yeah I think for me what was so liberating is accepting that I'm funny and that regardless of what happens in the gig or whatever happens in the evening it's like accepting that also that they don't have to agree with you you can say something really stupid but 
they can laugh and then you win because you're a comedian. But we're not preachers or TED talkers. We're not here to kind of be activists as well. And I think there's so many different narratives or at play. But fundamentally, we're failing if people aren't laughing. So it mm. doesn't matter if you're moral or if you're factually correct or anything. If you can elicit laughter, you've done your job. So I think understanding comedy and relearning it was definitely very liberating. Sadi, in the context of comedy, have you ever had a reaction from people that really surprised you, something that you weren't expecting? Well, when I did do a big event for Asian women in Birmingham a few years ago, uh, it was over 600 women and I was talking about blowjobs, I was talking about everything and they all laughed. And so I know that that sounds a bit obvious, but for me as a Muslim woman to be accepted by that many Asian women, it really was a turning point for me because I think for so long I didn't understand, you know, what I could and couldn't do. And basically Bill Hicks, who you probably know, he said that you're just trying to be friends with the audience and so you know either they're going to come along with you or not and I think there's a thing as well is that a lot of times people who go to watch comedy are white so you know it felt like a lot of the time my fan base if you like were white or black you know non-Asian and so it meant a lot to me when they were just able to laugh because I think for so long Asians have not been able to laugh at themselves especially like the material I'm doing is not very uh, common it's not predictable uh, you have to try and give it a chance and so for me that was definitely it meant a lot and it will always stay with me because I'm not it wasn't clean let's put it like that <laughs> Bad Beatty Alert. Masala Podcast is a multi-award winning South Asian feminist podcast all about taboo topics in South Asian culture. Everything from sex, sexuality, periods, porn, menopause, mental health and more. After four successful seasons in the UK, the next podcast season comes to the US featuring Hollywood actors, magazine editors and massive music icons. Listen to Masala podcast on all podcasting platforms. So there I want to pivot a little and talk about religion. Now you have openly talked about your relationship with your religion. I am a practicing Muslim. I believe you are too but as two muslim women we probably approach religion very differently as well right mm-hmm. yes that's what people need to understand even people within the muslim community can be so different and they can have such different relationships with their religion with their identity i was listening to one of your podcast episodes again i'm a huge podcast listener as well on top of being a podcaster <laughs> you were on fake the nation and you said something about religion mm-hmm. yeah if you believe in the faith then if you have you faith you have to, to accept it as is and you have to conform to it there is no picking or choosing and i'm rephrasing it a bit and i'm curious to know how your religion has informed your choices mm-hmm. how do you see conformity with religion as part of who you are what it is is i suppose when we're younger our relationship with religion is different to when we grow and so i guess like also being born into islam is a huge privilege because 
you don't know what it's like not to have it. So there's certain things that you just accept that you're Muslim, right? Because you're you're already of that faith. But as you know, our faith, which we call Iman, it fluctuates. So there's times where we can be a little looser with it. And there's times where we can be a bit more practicing, if you like, if you want to use that word or phrase. But like, basically, there's times where we're more conscious of our faith right. than others. And the way that faith is meant to be is you're not meant to really deviate from it. But living in this world, and even God has acknowledged that we're not going to be sinless, because even he said, if you don't sin, I will create a new people and replace you with them who do sin, because we can ask for forgiveness. So I think it's about your choices, and God has given us free will. And I think it's you reconciling that with yourself and your faith in God. And going back to my earlier point about your own relationship with yourself, like sometimes we are self-destructive. We don't love ourselves enough, and we'll do the wrong things, and we don't even think about our higher consciousness or our higher self. And then sometimes you're more on a healing kind of part of life. You actually want to be a better person and you want to try and beam your faith and a good image for your faith. It's really hard for it to be constant. Sadi, to your point, as a Muslim woman, the way I see my faith is, A, I think Islam is an egalitarian religion. B, we don't have clergy, so I don't need to have a middle person to define my relationship with God. And I can choose to live a life that I believe in and have that relationship and not be judged by others, right? So for me, Mm. the way I approach it, I prioritize God's humanity over everything else. And I think the unfortunate reality is a lot of times Muslims judge each other a lot. You're very polite. That's a nice way of putting it, Sadia. (laughs) (laughs) Contrary to what they should be doing. And that's why sometimes we are put in situations where we have to defend our religion. But honestly, I feel like we all pick and choose. There is some degree of conformity. But beyond that, we are making those choices on a daily basis. And it's okay. It's okay to make those choices. Sometimes it's subconscious. They don't think about it. Or let's say, for example, I know people, Muslim people who who drink alcohol, you know, or they'll eat non-halal food and they don't think about it. It's about sometimes that issue means more to you than other times. So it's not about your faith. I think it's about your journey on where you are. Right. And your relationship with faith. It's not just faith in isolation, right? It's your interaction with faith. And you may pick and choose certain things that you hold dearly. And then you may not follow certain tenets that you think are not as important to you. And that's something that I guess is beautiful about faith, especially Islam, because it doesn't really have that kind of imposition when it comes to who can dictate what you should follow. And it's between you and God. So that's how I approach it. People can always judge the outside, but they cannot judge the inside, you know. So it's easy for people to look at me and say, sex bomber, you know, ah. but <laughs> reality, you know, nobody knows really. Do you know what I mean? So you've got to kind of have your own moral compass, I guess. Is exactly, exactly. Sadia, talk to me about your book. How did it come about? I wanted to write a memoir and I called it Sex Bomb Intentionally because it feels like for Muslim women, sex can be a bit of a bomb. Also, it's got other layers to it, you know, like how sex bomb is basically in British slang is meant to mean, you know, a desirable woman. So it's posing a consideration to people that, you know, could a Muslim woman be a sex bomb? And for so long, I think extremism has been tied in with or associated incorrectly with Muslims. But for me, it felt like, you know, sex is a bit of a bomb, you know, (laughs) and uh, 
it, you, you can't bring it up certain places or it feels so taboo. So it felt like this is an area that was really untouched and still a curiosity to everybody, even though we don't really talk about it. It's like a hot potato. So I wrote my memoir, which covers so many parts of my life. It, it covers my journey and uh, finding comedy and um, trying to understand relationships, which for me, I guess, looking at the book now, it felt like it was a forbidden space. I didn't really want an arranged marriage, but then I didn't know if I could date or how I could date. Guys didn't approach me as well. Talks about my religion, uh, a little bit my relationship with the hijab or other people's relationship with my hijab. This conversation about self-care is very recent. Like I've not grown up with self-care being something that's been taught to me necessarily. Like as an Asian woman, I think as women anyway, we're really good at being there for other people. And so I think looking at the book and the journey, I, I really wanted to kind of talk about that so that young Asian women who read the book or anybody else kind of sees the importance of kind of not forgetting yourself. Sadia, what was the most challenging part of writing the book and sharing those hidden or as you call them forbidden parts of your identity and self? I didn't find it as challenging as I think people would expect because I'm a Muslim woman. So a lot of people are like, oh, are you okay? Like, have you had death threats or, you know, are the Muslim community angry with you? I think because I was doing a lot of stand-up material about the themes I cover about dick or about family or whatever not. So I think stand-up made me confident talking about these things. So it didn't feel so new. Absolutely. Last year, I was on this podcast called Imperfectly Phenomenal Woman by Laura Williams. And it's a safe space for women to talk about something that they find taboo or something that they can own unapologetically. And I remember Laura sending me an email asking what I want to talk about. And I was like, let's talk about sex and sexual empowerment. And Sadia, I kid you not, I was a jittery mess before the interview began I was like, oh, my gosh, how will I talk about this? And then I talked about things that I did not even realize were part of my consciousness. I used words that I had never used. And I felt so comfortable in that space. But once the interview ended and when it was published, I didn't share it on my social media. And that's the struggle that a lot of Muslim women sometimes feel because they don't want to be judged. And I consider myself an empowered, enlightened Muslim woman. And Mm, yet mm -hmm. I was almost scared to share it on my social media because I thought people in the community will judge me. And then I wrote a whole article about it and the article hasn't published yet. And I kept thinking, should I send it to a publisher? And I sent it to my husband. And I was like, what do you think? And he was like, this is great. That to me was a confirmation of what I am seeing as somebody in my 40s, as a Muslim woman who's been unable to speak about my sexual experiences or my journey with sexual empowerment. So I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing because a lot of Muslim women want to talk about this shit. A lot of Muslim women own it at least internally Mm -hmm. they just don't want to talk about it in public because they feel that they will be judged and there will be backlash and women like you and I need to normalize that right Mm -hmm. and can I ask you and you don't have to answer but do you feel like they're worried about being judged more by 
other Muslim women or other Muslim men or both? I would say other Muslim women. Thank you. And that's that's what has been my experience is that a lot of Muslim women just don't have time for it. And it's funny because I, I don't want to throw everybody under the bus. Like there's definitely been gigs where I've done comedy and Asian women in general, maybe not specifically just Muslim, but they come up to me and say, we're really horny. Oh my God, I'm so, that was so funny. <laughs> but then other women are like, you know, really put out by it and it's just very eye-opening and surprising because I would have thought that it might have been Muslim men who are a bit more angry but some of them have been really like supportive and like oh that's really cool like you said your husband was very like supportive and loving about it I totally get your response post that podcast because for you it was like the first time you had a release in that experience and so because it's different to your general persona and work it's like putting your head above the parapet that's kind of where as, as a comedian we are constantly being stupid and dickheads I don't know if you guys have that phrase in America but we're constantly being idiots you know or goofballs so I've kind of become a bit immune to it and also fundamentally I really don't care what people think like I think that's just been a, a kind of a strong personality trait that I have in that I'm not doing it for other people so how they respond even if it's overly positive it doesn't really affect me in the same way if it's negative it says a lot about them you know somebody who messages you on social media and takes time out of their day to try and bring you down this says so much more about their life and and their mindset than you because they're not really looking at your whole picture and I think the the thing that's frustrating for for the critics right is that it isn't black and white it's not that straightforward because you you've been a very loyal wife happily married for so long so basically you're not a hoe like what people would want to say that I am even though I don't think I am but it's a hoe rhetoric (laughs) and so they want to put you in a box and we don't fit in the box they will always put you in a box right and and that's the irony of it and you know what I have been thinking about it a lot more because I feel it impacts every facet of your life One's sexuality, your sexual journey, it impacts every facet, whether you're married, not married, whether you have kids, you don't have kids. Whether you have a vibrator or don't have a vibrator. At the end of the day, these conversations need to happen in a way where there is less fear of judgment. I won't say no fear of judgment because there's always going to be judgment. And by the way, it's not just Muslim women. It's not just Asian women. It happens to all femme identifying folks so we are talking about all women everywhere I think that's fair but also I just wanted to add on top of your point is that sometimes not talking about something says a lot so normalizing a conversation is not just like trying to say that that's all I'm about or that that's all we talk about but it's just the absence of it is a bit weird because like you said it's a big part of people's lives and there are very few spaces anyway, like sex education sucks in school. We all know that. There was no sex education in Pakistan. <laughs> yeah. So when we grow up, there should be a platform to be able to kind of have um, these are kind of responsible conversations to an exactly. extent. They can be a bit fun as well, but it's helpful because already women are unfortunately, and that's all women, not just Muslim women, 
kind of feeling like we're having to play catch up when it comes to sex in this territory because it's so acceptable for men to have sex and to do whatever they want. So we're already having to, I guess, upskill ourselves in a weird way. When we're talking about it, then it's basically like kind of accepting our relationship with it or, or at least processing. You're right, Sadia. And I think talking about it could start with talking about it to yourself. Sometimes yes. women don't even acknowledge their sexual identity to themselves, right? So if you don't want to talk to a friend, if you don't want to talk about it publicly, start talking about it to yourself. What does it mean to you? And then take those baby steps because I feel like there is so much shame around sex in every society and in every community that it it's is, almost yeah. impossible to have responsible conversations because a lot of people try to have these conversations in a more self-deprecating way so that they are not judged. But these are serious conversations, right? These are important, necessary conversations to have. And so all the women out there who are listening to this podcast, try to talk to yourself about it first if you haven't already. A hundred percent agree with you in the fact that where if you're not able to talk about it, especially as a woman, what happens is if you are in a relationship, the power dynamics is basically with the man, right? So it's about his pleasure or if something doesn't feel right and you're not able to have a conversation with yourself about it, where are you going to turn to? So I think, like you said, going on from having those conversations with yourself and also, I guess, having a really open relationship with your partner, because ultimately what I think is having a great sex life is where you're really able to be open and vulnerable and frivolous with your partner, right? Right. Sadia, I want to pivot a little and talk about something else that you said. Okay. You talk about sense of belonging and you call it a right rather than privilege. Mm. I agree with it, but I want to understand how do you define sense of belonging and why do you think it should be a right rather than privilege? A sense of belonging means you don't have to explain yourself to anybody. So it's unconditional. You're a human being, you're breathing, you're living. So you, it's not like you're being treated or considered to be an inconvenience or that this space isn't for you, that you have to have like a special pass. So sense of belonging, you should feel settled. It's so important to feel settled because where people don't feel settled, it can cause a whole plethora of problems for them, make them act in ways that isn't the way they would have chosen to act. So out of desperation or fear or panic, all of those things. So I think sense of belonging just feeds into having some sort of stability and safety and settlement. And so I think that so many immigrants, uh, just going back to the name of your podcast, uh, have to compromise the sense of belonging for the sake of what they're migrating to they have to leave their family or they have to leave the language that they know or the food that they know and the culture that they know where they do belong and have a sense of belonging and then it's like they're on borrowed time so here's how i see it when i came to the u.s i felt like i was an outsider and i thought we would go back my husband and i came together for college and the idea was we would go back and then we didn't for the longest time I felt like an outsider, but now I feel like I belong. But at the same time, I don't want to give somebody else the power to define whether I belong or not. I think it's also an internal struggle. Would you agree? 
Yes, I think it's psychological, but there's always like an inner and outer kind of perspective. I think if your inner is strong, you can have a better sense of belonging if internally you're strong. But even if internally you're strong, if the external is being quite negative towards you like you know I mean I'm not in America but like I heard that there was a lot of anti-Islamic sentiment under Trump for example so even if your inner is strong if the external is attacking you on one level or another or people who look like you because they have a similar characteristic then I think your sense of belonging is at least being attacked and so even if it's not winning which is great it's kind of a reminder that we as Muslims already um, kind of have in our faith that we are travelers in this world so we are able to be more resilient under these attacks and situations because of our faith which is fantastic but you know it still hurts a little bit I won't deny that because like you're American I agree with you that you shouldn't have to prove your Americanness or your Asianness to anybody as long as you're feeling secure that's the main thing but other people People do always kind of try to challenge you and try to size you up, you know? I agree, Sadia. Sadia, in the end, I am going to ask you something that I ask all my guests, but I will tweak it. I've tweaked it for other guests as well. If you were to define England in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Oh, this is a horrible question because there's the answer I want to say divided that's not as negative i was expecting more negativity really i mean to be honest but it's it's more negative than i wanted to say something positive but as you know with podcasting i think it's um, an honest account of where you are at that moment so if we had this conversation in a different point in time it could be even worse like you said or it could be i'm loved up and um so i'm gonna say something really flowery who knows right (laughs) sadia where can people find your book I'm on Tinder, guys. No, I'm joking. Um, (laughs) So my book is already out in America now, which is so exciting. You can buy it on Amazon or you can go to your local bookshop and they can order it for you. I'm going to be in America and New York for two months. If you want me to sign it, I will literally hand deliver it to you. Also, I'm on Instagram. So you can follow me at Sadia underscore Asmats. And um, please subscribe and listen to Immigrantly podcast where you're going to get the best hot conversations from this lovely, sexy Sadia. Thank you, Sadia. This was so wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a fun conversation, especially calling somebody by my name, Sadia, my namesake. So yeah, I enjoyed it. I will say this. For the longest time, I felt like talking about... My sexual journey meant that I was indulging in a conversation that somehow wasn't for me because I saw myself as this intellectual who can only talk about certain topics or should talk about certain serious topics. And I did not bother myself with something that I thought was so taboo or there was so much shame around it but I have come to realize that as I accept different parts of who I am as a woman as a human this is part of who I am and I should be able to talk about this in a more respectful way in a more honest way but talking about it doesn't mean that I am somehow 
undermining my identity or compromising on other parts of who I am. If you have any thoughts on this conversation, if you have any thoughts on any conversation that we have on this platform, do reach out to me. I would love to hear your thoughts. And look, if you don't like to write long emails, just send me a voice memo, sit in a quiet place, record something, share your thoughts with me. Your feedback is so important and it really informs me about what I should be exploring in this platform, this incredible platform. This episode was produced by me, written by Bobak Afshari and me. The editorial review is done by Shay Yu. Our editor for this episode is Paroma Chakravarti. Our theme music is done by Simon Hutchinson. Until next time when we have another maybe uncomfortable yet extremely important conversation. Take care.